You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. I am legitimately incapable of not overanalyzing everything that is put in front of me. <laughs> to the point that playing D&D with me is something like taking a graduate course. In <laughs> uh, I'm Shauna McGuire. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 62, Otherworldly World Building. Well, welcome, listeners, and welcome to our guest today, Shannon McGuire. We are so excited to have you here. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work? Hello, I am Shannon McGuire. I live in the Seattle area. Uh, I was the first person to attend the University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears, on a dual folklore and herpetology major, which is basically the dragon's degree um you know it's it's kind of a nightmare thing i read too much and i write too many books uh which takes us to telling you about my work i write too many books i think you write an awesome number of books no such thing as too many you know that is actually not what my publishers say they would like me to chill out and take a brief vacation so that publicity can figure out what the hell to do with me so tell us of these many books. I like literally the, the tell me about your work question is too big. It is, I have published more than 50 traditionally published novels in 11 years. Uh, it is a freaking nightmare. I am at this point three separate people. I primarily work in urban fantasy, uh, but I've also done a great deal of work in portal fantasy, biomedical science fiction, modern fantasy, and superheroes. Chill is not in my vocabulary, but I still use it. Uh, Marshall and I share a publisher, and uh, and he gets to watch me give them all minor nervous breakdowns on a regular basis. Excellent. What is the latest thing out from you that people should be watching for? Well, given that we are recording this on Monday, October 11th, and there is no possible way that you have it edited and out by Tuesday, October 12th, <laughs> that would be, um, yeah, I, I literally have a book coming out tomorrow as Woo! we're recording this. Happy book is, birthday. Ah, thank you. Sleep is for other people. Um, and that is the second of the Up and Under books along the Saltwise Sea, which are sort of, the, the Up and Under is sort of an Aussian children's fantasy world written in intentionally archaic style. And this is a quadrology of books that started out as, as epistulatory insets in Middle Game, which was one of my novels that came out in 2019. Very cool. So Very, very cool. Happy book Happy book birthday for the umpteenth time, but you know, it's never, it's never too many times to hear it. Happy book birthday. Never too many times. Thank you. And you know, my brother says that getting the book that you wrote as a book inside a book published is actually a nerd Olympics. That's goals. That's, that's goals. That's like, like book ducking. Like, it's a book ducking. If I can just nest one more, I get some kind of special award from the American Library Association. And that award says, please stop in large friendly letters. <laughs> in terms of author achievement badges, that is that is next level. 
So I feel like we we asked the right person um, on to talk about otherworldly world building. But before we get there, I just I always love geeking with our guests about just like what do you love about world building? Like what's just this? What do you what do you like? I like it when things make sense. Um, I I really everything should be answered like you had a five year old in the room. But why? But why? But why? Because ninety percent of the time, the moment that things fall apart is the moment that the author got tired of asking why. I genuinely think that one of the best works of zombie media in the last 20 years, second Resident Evil movie, because it is the only zombie film that actually stopped to consider the transmission vectors for their virus and then asked themselves what that would mean. Um, most of the time I'm coming out of things going, I just wanted the exposition fairy to talk to us for another 10 seconds. And if they had, I would think that this was a work of unending genius. And as it stands, I kind of want to bite somebody. <laughs> but then the question is, is, is that a transmission vector for something? Absolutely is a transmission vector for something. But like Wreck-It Ralph is my favorite Disney movie pretty much ever. I adore Wreck-It Ralph. And yet the whole thing falls apart if you start asking yourself why Felix didn't just clock a little kid with his hammer. Would have been a very different movie. Would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all he needed to do was whack Vanellope. You hit something with the hammer. It is immediately repaired to its original condition. He has now fixed the damage to her programming that is keeping her from leaving the game. And they can evacuate Sugar Rush without trying to fix anything. Then, then he wouldn't have to have done the sacrifice into, into the Diet Coke pit. And it still gets me. <laughs> it's a beautiful moment, but they should have thought about it harder. That's, that's one of those. It's an animated movie. I'm a 48-year-old man, and it still, like, makes me misty. Just <laughs> beautiful. It's a beautiful film, and it's a beautiful moment. But if I can jam a hole in your entire core concept in less than five seconds, you have done something wrong. <laughs> it's like that, that part, speaking of animated movies, that part in Frozen, where it's like the trolls should have just been like, no, that's, don't, that's a bad idea. Why would, you? No. <laughs> Lock her, lock her up for no love. It's love. The answer's love. We're, this we is what we, we thought do. you'd get that being her parents, but oh, come on. D okay, well, go ahead and ruin your lives. Yeah. How did they jump so quickly to you frozen everything forever if they've never had that kind of ice magic around? Like, oops. My problems We're with frozen pessimists. are many. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's just frozen everything for six weeks for a nice vacation. It's a work stoppage <laughs> for Arendelle. This is I. And, you know, in, so, in some ways, it is an interesting study in human psychology that we go straight worst case scenario, right? Like, <laughs> unknown ice magic, it must be the worst possible of all outcomes. It's not just a fun winter vacation for skiing. Everything is ruined forever. I want to see the version now where she's, instead of a princess, she's like the leader of a union. And she's like, no, when I say we're going on strike, what I mean, I mean is... everything stops. We're all <laughs> <It's> going, <laughs> everything. <laughs> It's a snow day. <laughs> Enforced. So now that we've eviscerated some favorite Disney movies for our listeners, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> Shannon, it always interests me to hear other um, writers like process on world building. And we have a variety here. But like for you, are you like a 
get everything laid out ahead of time, world builder? Do you enjoy spreadsheets like Marshall does? Or are you more organic in the process? Like, what does it look like for you? Uh, well, right now it looks like I was not given a PG rating before this, so I'm really hoping it's high because it's fuck around and find oh, out. Oh, yes, yes. That is my general <laughs> policy on all things. Uh, I do an inordinate amount of research and work first to try and make sure that the structure hangs together, and that's when the spreadsheets come to the party. Though I am less interested in spreadsheets than I am in private wikis, uh, I want to have everything coherent and in one place. And I really like being able to justify extremely expensive tax-deductible folklore books, which you kind of need some documentation or your accountant is like, why did you need an Arne Thompson guide? I don't understand because it's pretty. But I need it. <laughs> I needed it. I needed it Critical to feel joy. But, you know, so so there's that. And then once <sighs> I have the world in place, I like to just sort of let it run like it was some sort of sim machine and keep asking, keep asking questions. How is this working? What is the consequence of this action? Why is this happening? Why has this been happening? Can I make it stop happening? Oh, God, how is there a sequel? <laughs> I am not good at making it stop happening, but I'm very good at sequels. Well, if, if you can't have the one, the other's a good consolation. So it kind of is. That yeah. worked. <laughs> Since we're kind of talking other worlds and portal stuff and you've done portal stuff, is there anything different or unique for you world building portal stuff? Well, so the thing about portal stuff is that you can actually ram yourself into the Heather problem, uh, which I think is super fun. Um, have you encountered the Heather problem on this particular podcast or the Tiffany problem? We've encountered the Tiffany problem many Tiffany times. Tiffany problem, yes. yes. <clears throat> so the Tiffany problem is a big deal and it comes up more in portal fiction because in portal fiction, you are usually starting with our world with a, a primary first world fantasy setting. And then you're going from there to a hard secondary at absolute minimum. You know, you're going not just to the Harry Potter level, it's connected to our world, it's aware of our world, but it's not our world. You're going to Oz, you're going to Wonderland, you're going to a completely different set of rules. There is literally no reason that portal fantasy has to be stuck with fantasy. And we had an absolutely brilliant book a couple years ago that sadly the sequel never materialized to called Ninth City Burning, which was a uh, portal fantasy setting where it was Earth versus a militant Narnia. Like, high-tech Narnia, they, they were out for blood, and we broke through the portal, got to, ran into them, and discovered that the reason we don't do portals is because the people on the other side want to murder us <laughs> all the time. But while that was definitely fantasy, it played more into science fiction tropes. It had a lot of, of the accoutrement that we associate with science fiction. Once Upon a Time, which was a Disney show on ABC and was completely knickerbonkers, like that show <laughs> had no chill. It had less chill than I do. Wild. Absolutely wild. <laughs> it was. But one of the things that they did really, really right was that they acknowledged all these Disney movies are in different subgenres. If we want to have them all fit together in a single universal setting, we need to allow for science fiction. You know, Dr. Frankenstein is eventually going to show up and have a fight with Wreck-It Ralph. And that is just the corner that we have backed ourselves into. And allowing that gave them, weirdly, a more coherent and logical world than they would have had if they had tried to restrict themselves to a set of rules that didn't actually work with the rules they already had. 
So the hardest thing about building your portal is deciding what is on the other side of the portal that differentiates it from this world, because obviously you don't want a portal fantasy that's just, I went through this hole into modern day New York and did some taxes. But you know, what, <laughs> what differentiates it while also figuring out what the similarity points are? So I, I feel the, the, the inverse portal is not done enough where people from a magical world end up here. And <laughs> the, like, the enchanted model. Food? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Have you tried Italian food? It's amazing. We have nothing like this back home. That is the entire basis of the 10th kingdom. Oh, I love that miniseries. I love it so much. It's a fantastic miniseries. And it's one of the better cases of we have decided to try and make all of the fairy tales make sense in one setting. It's fantastic because, like, first the the fairy tale characters come to modern, well, well, it was 1999, but then modern New York. And then when they do travel back to fairy tale world, it is. Like, you've got, like, the medieval next to these 1940s-styled stories, and it's somehow it all works. Somehow it all feels like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. They're just in a different part of the kingdom, so they've got a totally different aesthetic. Sure. Yeah, sure. and weirdly, that is more how the world actually works than the Planet of Hats setup that you tend to get from fantasy or from Star Trek or whatnot. I say that even as I will reject world building that makes no sense with great vigor, uh, more <laughs> vigor than people want me to have frequently. Uh, I'm in a D&D campaign right now. It's a homebrew D&D campaign, and it's mostly been D&D aesthetic. It's it's mostly been running around in that pseudo medieval this time period never really existed, but it would look great at a Ren Fair aesthetic that D&D exists in. <laughs> and uh, we entered a new region. And for reasons that basically seem to boil down to the people writing the campaign thought it would be cool. The new region is full on Art Deco 1920s, flapper silhouettes, all of this stuff. And, and my first response was, how are you justifying the underwear? <laughs> Solid question. Excellent that, question. You know, that's that's that, that is some difficult technology in terms of underwear. I just Yeah. Well, the downfall of the corset was pretty much entirely brought about by the war, by needing the metal from the corsetry stays to use for the war effort. So, bras were developed just because we couldn't afford corset metal anymore. Well, and you have the development of the elastics that will let you do things like a slip-on girdle instead of lacing yourself into a corset. And, you know, I have yet to find a pre-modern-day material that will do that with quite as much aplomb. <laughs> I, have, I have not made friends with either my GM or the people that wrote this campaign by my continual harping on the fact that the underwear makes no goddamn sense. <laughs> you, you can't just wake up one morning and decide it's time to start the Jazz Age. That is, that is not how any of this shit works. <laughs> But where did the jazz come from? There is, there is no oh, jazz. No, you can't do. You can't have the without the with the. Yeah, no. I'm sorry. Now, now I have. Now have I have you angry. done the evolution of music work? Too. I don't think so. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, this is straight up American and ragtime and no. Anyway, anyway. This is straight up world building as excuse for aesthetic, and that is one of the quickest ways to alienate me. And you know, I love aesthetic. And I, th I firmly believe that you can start with the aesthetic that you want to have, but then you have to, like, scaffold under it all of the, like, but why and how and but really, really, really. And remember that sometimes illogic is the most important world building tool you have. 
you know, I uh, I was a child in the 1980s. I grew up in a bedroom the color of Pepto-Bismol because I was a, a girl-shaped child in the 1980s. And bizarrely enough, you can directly source my bedroom to Hitler because it was his choice to mark the gay men with pink triangles that reversed the order of childhood color coding. So all of my pink crap is entirely because Hitler caused people to start thinking that pink was for girls. See, I, I did know that like in the 19th century, pink was the manly color. I did Sometimes. not know what the, what, yeah. what, what, the, <laughs> what the, what the transition point of that was. Yeah, it is a fairly clearly delineated transition point. And so I look at my pink My Little Pony castle and my pink Barbie stuff and all of these people saying that little girls are innately attracted to pink. And I'm like, mm, no. But does that make sense? Do you really want to say an incredibly giant war criminal is the reason that you have color coded <laughs> the feminine children of your world in one way? You don't. But that is straight up how the real world worked. When it comes down to it, people actually make very little sense sometimes. Yep. But that's why we're fun. Yep. You still can't have the freaking jazz age without justifying it. I'm sorry. Though I do love sometimes when somebody's like, well, this bit of world building doesn't make sense. How does this happen? And the writer in question will then have loaded in the chamber this, well, you see, seven centuries ago, and go on their whole little rant. Uh, and you're like, oh, okay, you did do the math. Excellent. Um, Marshall, oh. are, are you the writer you're talking about right now, Marshall? <laughs> I've been that person, but I've not, I'm not the only you, person who's been that I person. No, like certainly not. Many people... I think this is an I am Spartacus moment right here. Like, spent three years the on the phone result. with the CDC to raise the debt. I mean, I'm definitely that writer. It is pretty much the, the, the reason this podcast exists. <laughs> well, I think it's something that's, and we've sort of talked about this in the podcast sometimes before. Modern writers have this expectation because of social media and things. Like, writers will ask you, or readers will ask you those questions. So you sort of have to have some of your answers loaded in the chamber, ready to go. Even if they didn't quite make it on the page, it's like, no, no, but I did think about this. I can show my work. And sometimes the questions will not come at you in good faith, or they will come with the assumption that you didn't show your work. And then your blood pressure will go up and you'll have to buy more Magic the Gathering cards to bring it back down. She says non-specifically. <laughs> So we, we started out thinking about this episode topic being like, oh, it's going to be Halloween. It's spooky season. So y'all like Halloween, right? I'm not the only dork who's like, I love Halloween, right? It's the best. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Marshall, it's like, do, do you when... enjoy Halloween? I enjoy Halloween, but I'm also, I'm just not the person who will like do the decorations <laughs> just because I'm fundamentally lazy about decorating. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you'd make a, like a feast, though. That would be your Halloween celebration. It would be like a pumpkin-based explosion. Well, also, in this household, we do Dia de los Muertos. So, many years, there will be decoration in the sense that the altar will be done that takes up one entire wall of the downstairs. And, and also, we will do a Dia de los Muertos event, and I will make uh, a mole, and it's absolutely lovely obviously we're not doing that this year because we're not going to have 80 people in the house but it's been <laughs> that's how we've done things in the past yep and i am absolutely a halloween kid which has made the last couple years super fun 
Uh, we have a local policy of we extend Halloween by one day for every day that Christmas decorations appear in the store before <laughs> September 1st. So uh, in 2019, we didn't finish 2019's Halloween until May of 2020. Um, <laughs> I don't actually know how long Halloween is going this year because I was not going into stores by May of 2020. But last year, listening to all of the people who couldn't be bothered to socially distance and actually follow the damn pandemic rules, talking about how, oh, no, Christmas will be canceled. This is all horrible. And I'm like, y'all already killed my holiday. You canceled my holiday two months ago because you couldn't keep your damn mouth covered. So I've got a lot of Halloween-based bitterness right now. Well, it was just insult to injury that it was a Saturday last year and we lost it. Like, that was, just, like, that doesn't happen that often. What? And, man. Wasn't it also a full moon? It was also a full moon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they took that from us. I'm still mad, too. Yeah. You're like, I didn't know I was opening a can of worms this big when I asked an innocent question. And now all the Halloween girls are rioting. <laughs> so, True. we're grumpy. I will still sit in my house in a costume eating Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, but... <laughs> That's fair. I mean, you do you. I am watching an inordinate number of horror movies, as I always do. But this is... Last year was the first year in a decade that I did not do Halloween at Walt Disney World. And I'm not going this year either. And I have a lot of hate. I have so much hate to share right now. Will Reese's peanut butter cups help at all? or No, they'll just send me into oh. a sugar coma. No. <laughs> Sometimes they help me. That is good. Um, but we were just kind of thinking about how so much of our traditions around Halloween kind of pop out of the idea of the world splitting open at this particular time of year and allowing in spoopy things from other places and other worlds. And we kind of like, kind of like, blossomed out from there but yeah it's like halloween kind of gets to play with like that like liminal space of otherworldliness in this in like in the real world without even having to get into writing fantasy yeah, that's the absolutely borders. connected to the the fact that we are really sliding uh into the end of the year at that point you know we we have finished the harvest everything is sort of wrapped up uh in the celtic traditions we have Samhain and we have the thinning of the wall between the worlds but that was not as big a deal as modern Wiccans want to make it out to be uh, and you know that does and that has spread quite a lot uh, the idea that at this end of harvest the end of the growing season and the entry into the dying season is sort of when the dead the ghosts the fae whatever you want to talk about can come back through there's something really seductive and interesting about that idea that there's a certain time of year when things could be abnormal, when the world that we all trudge through all the time might just shift apart a little bit and, and all these elements of fantasy that we enjoy in our fiction could become more real than they are the rest of the year. I, I think it's a, I don't know, it's a way for a lot of people to play with that, that line of, of what reality is and what it means and, and where we believe in certain things or not. And... I mean, a lot of portal fantasies have played with that. Like, you just have to have the timing right, or it's the right day of the year, or the right face of the moon, or the right stars in the right place, or all these things combined, and that's when the portal will open, so you can plan for that right moment so that you can get through and then be in the magical place that you wanted to be. 
or or oops didn't want to be you're saying that's a common element i literally can't think of a portal fantasy that focuses on that element other than the halloween town series from disney you know i can remember a couple of kids books from when i was a kid and oh gosh there was a magic there was a magic tree in a park and i can't remember what the title of the book was but that was like i think it was you had to be at the right time and then the tree would let you through i don't know it's been a while since i was a small child reading that one it's one of those things that i and this might be the whole uh what is that what's the effect i'm forgetting the name of it Um, where it seems like i remember a lot of stories where that's was the case but i can't think of one anything more but it might be that my memory is just combining halloween town (laughs) with everything else yeah i mean that is very possible but we get that effect a lot uh when we're talking about the construction of worlds you know this idea that everything has this element vampires have always been allergic to the sun or whatever and it really just came from one thing that managed to hit at the right time and make a big impression mandela effect that's what you were thinking of yes mandela Mandela effect effect. that's right i do know it is it is a part of in Roman history, there were certain days of the year that were considered nefasti because they were like more open to the underworld. And, and there were days where you invited the good spirits to come back and have a walkabout, really, because they deserve that. They come see what your descendants are doing. Have a walkabout. You brought the good spirits in. But then there were other days where it was like, oh, no, the bad spirits could come through on these days. So we we all stay inside and we throw beans over our shoulders to ward them off because that seems like it'll work don't know why but it's what they did (laughs) but it was like completely random days of the year too it was like there there were like three days in like august and november and may that it it had no association to like yeah star position or phases of the moon or anything it was just like no obviously on on august 11th that's when this happens see with something like that i always imagine that like august 11th was the birthday of somebody that they were just mad at and they were just like we're just gonna make it but he's gonna stay in his house (laughs) i like that you bring up like it can it can be a good thing when the veil thins and things can come through where we can go through or it can be like a really bad thing like depending on what you're talking about and what your uh perhaps like risk tolerance for the supernatural is one of the things i kind of always think about is how how people might have felt walking home from seeing a Midsummer Night's Dream and being like, you know what, actually that was really fucked up. That was terrifying. There are fairies everywhere. I don't like it. I'm <laughs> I'm gonna go home and shut my door now because I am I'm feeling uncomfortable. Well for us we're like, fairies, that was fun. Haha, <laughs> fairy court. Wee And they're like, No, fairies are not fun. Not fun at all. They're they're scary assholes and I don't like them and I don't want to think about them being in our world or having access to me. So hold on while I go hang some things up in my doorway. Because we do have like the we go through stories, then we have the like stuff that comes through to us stories, right? Yeah, those are very interconnected a lot of the time. Doors swing both ways. And I guess then the question is how much of a a threat to the status quo is it whether it's someone leaving the the given world the the assumed um real world i guess or something else coming through like where is the threat that something's coming through or is the threat that something might not be able to get back to the status quo different ways of envisioning it yeah, and are there doors that you want to keep open or are there doors that you want to shut and make sure that no one opens ever again? 
And then are there doors that it would actively be destroying the natural order of things to try and force them to close? Any of the gateways to the underworld, if you close the gateways to the underworld, how the heck is grandma's soul going to get to where she's supposed to be? You know, you're not supposed to mess around with that. Uh, a catabasis, which is the process of taking a journey into the underworld without actually belonging there yet, is a major thematic element through Greek myth. Uh, it was a fairly standard thing. We had regimented ways of going on a catabasis. They were a they were normal. That was just part of the hero's journey that maybe you're going to go to the underworld. You're going to go to hell. Have a nice time. We'll see you when you get back. And so interesting with those two, because there are such strict rules that kind of accompany this is this is how this is how you get through hell. These are the things you must do and must not do. And I suppose we have, depending on, yeah, and with Fae, if you're going into, you know, the land of the fairies, there are strict rules. These are the things you do, the things that you don't do. Don't eat the food. It's a bad idea. You won't come back. Well, you know, talking about reverse portal fantasies, Hellboy by Mike McNola is really a reverse portal fantasy. Hellboy himself came through a portal. Um, he was summoned by someone that wanted the Antichrist to end the world. And there is a panel very early in where all of the demons down in hell are lamenting because someone has just fed Hellboy a pancake. <laughs> and because he has tasted a pancake, now he will never return. I mean, I wouldn't want to leave a place where there were pancakes. So That's fair. <laughs> yeah. The whole pancake, pancake is way, way better than the three pomegranate seeds or whatever, right? Like, oh, that's lame compared to a pancake. Yeah, six pomegranate seeds way less exciting than a pancake also the fact that it's a pomegranate at this point we don't know if that's what it was in the original form of the story because welcome to the oral tradition but the fact that it's a pomegranate means that all of those modern interpretations where persephone really wanted to stay with hades are a lot more credible because have you ever tried to accidentally <laughs> eat any part of a pomegranate nah you gotta it work for that work. you gotta want it yep <laughs> in fact why stop at six i mean man once, Once you've done the work, work, I yeah. just down on those seeds like nobody's business. Yep. I like that idea too, though, of like if somebody does stay in in the world they were not natural to, what might it upset? What starts to break down if someone is missing from their born world? I like that in um in Neil Gaiman's Sandman series when Dream gets captured and taken out of the dreamscape, which is itself another world another universe that all living things visit sometimes but don't live there but when he's not there anymore to control his world and its borders it starts falling apart and nightmares escape and and the boundaries of dreaming shift what happens if we remove somebody a character from their natural world and put them someplace else and i feel like to make that work you kind of have to conflate the portal world and the chosen one narrative because that the world only falls apart in the absence of dream because dream is dream you know, he is not just some dude. We have other dreams and nightmares over the course of Sandman who manage to get out, who live good lives in the waking world, who are happy. Uh, but they are also not the arbiters of that reality. I think you have to have, and again, that's a world building question, right? What kind of world do you build that has what kind of character is requisite to be there? And I guess you could build a world in which every person does have some reason for being there that if they are gone the whole thing just falls apart but i think that you, you may start to that would be difficult to write without venturing into some kind of twee sentimentality perhaps nothing wrong with a little twee but, sentimentality but you could do it but you could do it you start you start getting more like alternate realities as opposed to like fully envisioned other 
worlds. It's the like, was the other part of the movie of It's a Wonderful Life another world that was created by, you know, the guy not being there? Not the critical to the entire trip, f- at least. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Like, not necessarily critical to the stability of the entire world, but something changes. But yeah, it's like, where's that line between just an alternate reality and a full other world? And to me, I think it's it's different rules. Like, there's something different enough about the other world, how it functions, what rules of order or chaos apply, what rules of magic or technology apply, that make it different enough that it's considered just its own its own bubble thing, not just another version of where we live. Rules of time. So, so often, that's a big that's a big thing in is that the time flowed differently in the portal world. And how much of that I wonder stemmed from the idea of like we have to make this sort of fantasy story be like it could have just been a dream, and so therefore, <laughs> like <laughs> therefore, time flowed differently over there, and you came back, and no time had passed, and so maybe it was just a dream. Like I wonder. Because that was the the style at the time that you couldn't. Well, just and be like, a lot of those too were movies that that the original, yeah. like Oz, was was not a dream in the original. Um, there are even some movies that I guess Cabinet of Dr. Caligari isn't exactly a, a portal fantasy, but the whole thing is framed as a dream. Like we got into this like trend of framing portal fantasies or fantasy in general as a dream sequence even when in the original or in, in the original screenplay, it wasn't. Although saying that the time dilation or the time distortion is a trend kind of discounts the fact that the majority of portal fantasies can really be rooted back to the old fey mythology where you took a nap in the wrong circle and now whoops. You know, Machine <laughs> is kind of the, uh, the er portal fantasy in a large way. He went off to be the lover of the fairy queen for a long time and he started having nightmares that Ireland was in danger. Um, and would wake up crying that his mother was suffering in his absence because Mother Ireland is not well. And finally, his his wife basically said, you can go home for five minutes. You can go and make sure Ireland is still there, but do not step off your horse. If you step off your horse, you're fucked. And he went back to Ireland and he saw that it was still there. And then he stepped off his horse and aged into dust in an instant. So the idea of differing time flow really does come from those mythological roots to the subgenre. I do love those old Celtic stories that are always like, as long as you don't do this, everything's fine. And there's like, well, I'm going to do that. <laughs> Welcome to Human Nature 102. Yeah. As long as you just wear your mask, you'll be fine. Oh, well. yeah, the, the, the Celts had human hubris down really well. They really did. But also that time dilation can go the other way. There's, there are the types of stories where the person like spends a night in the fairyland and then oops it's been a century rip van winkle and the like yeah versus the the narnia model of you lived 30 years and grew up and had a whole life and then you came back and you were 12 again sorry oops (laughs) and the time it took to see you're gonna have to do puberty again (laughs) no (laughs) well and the ones too where it's it they seem to run in weird parallels but I guess I'm thinking of like Spencer's Fairy Queen, where like Fairyland is a real place, and but the real world also kind of exists, and sometimes people like pop over. It's it's rather unclear, honestly, but it seems to be running in a kind of parallel, and and perhaps the two are influencing one another in some way. I'm also thinking about Brigadoon, where you know the 
where the the village vanishes for a hundred years and then shows up for a day and then you know and is going to vanish and for a hundred years again and so it has that sort of same sort of sense. The thing that I always loved about the story is like it's just day two of the miracle as far as the people in Brigadoon are concerned. Mm-hmm. Like a week from now, it's going to be like twenty five fifty seven, and what's that going to be like for them? <laughs> They're going to have a real bad day, and as soon as they come out of the mist, they're all going to die of COVID instantly because they have no antibodies. Like, Brigadoon can be tracked by the smallpox outbreaks. Poor Brigadoon. I'm sure the preacher thought it was a really good idea at the time, but, you know. Well, the number of problems we could trace to that statement over the course of history. (laughs) Sure, the priest thought it was a great idea. So, you brought up... um... Kind of in Sandman, but I was thinking too of how dreamscapes themselves, dreams, like that is in some ways treated as an other world. And in some stories, actually a place you go to, not just a psychological state. Uh, Catherine Valenti has an absolutely ingenious portal world, Palimpsest, which takes place in a sexually transmitted city. Uh, and when people first start going there, they genuinely believe that they are dreaming because you go to Palimpsest when you fall asleep. But it is a real place, and if you are lucky and you fuck enough people that have been infected, you can stay forever. I, I'm not kidding. That is the premise of the book. You've got a sexually transmitted city. You have sex with a stranger that has a picture of this city tattooed on themselves. When you wake up, that piece will be tattooed on you, and you can now visit that nightmare, that neighborhood when you go to sleep. Hashtag goals. <laughs> it, it, I mean, the, the idea of the dreamscape, I think, really plays upon the liminality of the other world and the changeability that we sort of associate with all of this. The time, the location, is it still going to be there if you try to go back to it or has the portal closed? Like, dream by its very nature being so shifting seems like it fits well with all of those other concepts. And the fact that we are currently living through a plague time means that these things appeal much more uh, because we have turned the entire world into portals. Is the city that you remember loving still there? Can you go back? It's gone now. Uh, And that is a very big shift in human thought that we have been through before, but we didn't think as a people that we were going to go through it again anytime soon. This is another one of those things that I have the sense of this being a common trope, but I can't think of any specific examples of where dreams also represent sort of like, not the other worlds themselves, but sort of that, the border area between different worlds. Because that's the thing that you get, you also just see a lot also. It's not that the portal goes directly to another world, but the portal will go to a place where then you can access the other worlds from there. And then you might have access to a lot of other worlds. I know I know that was a thing they did in The Magicians, for one. Yeah, the Misty Place is actually a relatively common trope, uh, not as a, full board, as a full-born doorway, but this is a connective tissue point. This is a way that you can access, even if you can't fully cross over for whatever reason. I like the, um, I think a lot of Eastern European and Russian folklore does the, the concept that dr- when you are dreaming, your soul is actually wandering around. But it's like you have to then ask that question of like, well, where are you going? Because a lot of the stuff does not make sense here. So let's be going somewhere else and either some kind of bordery place or some other place. When you sleep, your soul's getting up and taking trips, which considering that my days are very boring, I kind of 
like that idea. Like, <laughs> yes, go do something else. Have fun. Hope yeah, but man, I feel, I feel sorry for the souls from other dimensions that have to wander into ours when they sleep. Like, oh dear. Okay. I, maybe it's exciting for them. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. The grand adventure of like ordering at Chipotle could be a whole Yeah, I've never had a burrito. <laughs> And that does actually take us to one of the things that you see come up kind of frequently on social media right now is we are all living the lives that our ancestors dreamt for us. We have more spices than the richest king of all time. Our homes are warm in the winter and cool in the summer for the most part. You know, even if we're miserable, we have tiny people in boxes that can sing to us 24-7. We are living the fantasy life. So if you take someone that's from Narnia or wherever and is not living that life, who is used to having a medieval level of technology or even an Aussian level of technology and give them the opportunity to enjoy modern comforts without being here long enough to have to learn about things like the American healthcare system or tax accountants. You know, if you take out all of the costs and consequences of our world, this is a pretty freaking great place to visit for 15 minutes. I mean, when you've been living life with a chamber pot, a toilet is magic. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a very, a very grass is, is always greener type conversation you can see <laughs> happening between the characters from different worlds. So Stephen King's Dark Tower series is very much a portal fantasy. The tower is at the center of reality and you can travel along it to go to other places. And there is a point where Roland DeShane, the gunslinger, winds up in our world. Uh, he doesn't stay for long, thankfully, because a lot of people would have died. But, you know, he gets here and he gets a Pepsi, just a cold cup of Pepsi with ice in it. And he completely loses his shit because it is sweeter than anything he has ever tasted before. And it's cold on a hot day. And he is just standing there sucking down coldness and sweet for like six pages. And it doesn't get boring because he's so happy because you can actually see where in the world building his sheer raw joy is fully justified. I feel like that's a great thing to think about when we think about if you're building multiple worlds, if you're building a multiverse, what is unique to each world? What do the characters in each world find exciting or boring? And then what would a visitor find exciting or boring? That's probably part of the mechanics that goes into that construction. Yes, very much so. You know, with a side order of if you then have to try to explain that world to people from our world, you get to run into the impossibility of similes. I tried to explain potatoes in the context of if you've never had a potato before, it tastes like a starchy thing. <laughs> It's like chewing on a pillow, but way better. Like, yeah. what do your would pillows you... taste like? Also, <laughs> they like a consistency, but like... it's it's if you had really stale bread, and then you fluffed the stale bread, and then you added butter. What's bread? Well, you didn't tell me we didn't have bread. <laughs> Why would we have bread if not potatoes? You know, so you start asking questions about what's the food. And how's that going to work? And any world building, uh, you do have the, the option to turn it on its head. Uh, Ruthanna Emrys wrote an absolutely brilliant duology that I'm hoping will eventually expand called The Innsmouth Legacy, uh, which is cosmic horror told from the perspective of the last of the Deep Ones. And what does Cthulhu as a god look like when that is who you view as not necessarily a loving god, but a non-malicious god? Is Cthulhu innately hostile? He just doesn't care about you. Like, he's not here to hurt anyone. He's just going to rise and destroy all reality one day. 
And is that really so frightening if you don't have this thought that humanity is the end all and be all of creation? So watching someone without changing that world building take and completely invert it is a fascinating uh, exercise. I was, it just reminded me of, I think it was like a Tumblr post from a while ago, like explaining what Cthulhu would be like. If you were in your backyard and then all of a sudden like the ants on the ground like spelled out your name, you would be at least intrigued enough to come and see what was going on. And then, and then you would probably stomp on all the ants anyway, but you would at least come and look and be like, and if they're like, we would like your help too. It's like, I want this one other ant to love me. You're like, oh, that's easy. I'll destroy the rest of the colony. And then there'll be just the two of you. It's like, no, that wasn't what I wanted. But like, that's all I can do. <laughs> well, I think that those, you know, I, I love those story reboots because i think they help to show us how we've changed the concept of the other world whatever it might be over time like none of these are static that we keep what they look like for you know millennia on end like we're humans and we change up the story a lot i mean i think one of the most striking ones is like the concept of fairies we take fairies from these rather scary critters who might really screw you up to like these little happy flower guardians and you know they live in your backyard and they put dew on the clovers and aren't they nice and it's like this is a total shift in how we think about this particular other world and obviously now we're you know shifting again and can do other fun things with it so i think thinking of any kind of other world as malleable and you get to play with it no matter what the antecedents may be you know, it's, there's, there's no canon when it comes to a lot of this stuff because we've been changing it for centuries. For funsies. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to build an other world, we've talked a lot about the places that you start and the things you have to think about. I guess one question that I kind of have in terms of if you're, you're going to build an other world, if you're going to build a portal that you're going to slide through, like what, to what extent is it connected to or in tandem with? The world that you're starting out with probably this world but that's, that's an option decisions too. that you have to make yeah that's you've, you've got an entire panoply of of selections to go from there there's no hard rule and since that in terms of plot is going to drive a lot what kind of a story do you want to have drives some of what kind of a portal world you're going to build mm-hmm is it a terrifying place? Is it a comforting place? Is it, you know, from the viewpoint of your, your characters, is it the threat or is it the solace? Is it the escape? I think is one, you know, germ to begin with. It, it will probably be affected by, you know, exactly your subgenre um, and other considerations. Do you only have one other world or do you have many different ones? Um, I love the Invisible Library series that plays with so many different possibilities on this this scale of order and chaos and a scale of magic and technology. How big is your is your otherworldly map, I guess? And I think that that question of, you know, is this a pleasant place or a terrifying place kind of feeds into one thing I've noticed, you know, I think a lot of, and not a lot of, but quite a bit of when we think portal fantasy or expectations that we have fall into that, like, Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home model that the protagonist eventually wants to go home. And it's like, well, but do they? Like, that's a question to ask. Do they really? Well, and that's partially because a lot of the children-aimed portal fantasy is that child's fantasy of running away, of going to a place where you are fully understood, where you are allowed to be yourself, no matter how 
uh, weird or unfashionable or inappropriate to your parents, that is. And then the adult fear kicks in. You start worrying about those parents. You know, your kid has just completely disappeared. Are you not upset about this? So I kind of feel like the kid wanting to go is the world building step. And then the kid wanting to come back is the author going, oh, fuck, no parents are going to buy this for their kids if at the end of it they just go off to live with the Care Bears forever. And that, that becomes another world building question of does the door stay open or does it close? Is it a place that you can revisit or do you only get the one chance and that's it? That's another consideration to build in. Jumanji is a good example of a portal fantasy where once the door is closed, you just stay gone. Um, and at the time, that was super shocking and upsetting because it ate a dude. It just ate him. <laughs> like, stop eating dudes, Jumanji, or we'll throw you in the ocean. It'll always come back. Yeah, I love the end of that book where the kids just take it and put it back in the park. And you're like, what, what, hath, what hath I beget? And then they see the other kids going and picking it up. And it's like, this is actually kind of sick and wrong, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, who created that portal and why? That's the backstory I want yeah. with Jumanji. Yeah. Like, who made that prequel. board game? I want the Jumanji prequel. <laughs> the phrase Clive Barker's Jumanji just came to my head. <laughs> I mean, Clive Barker did do his portal fantasy. Uh, he did a couple, honestly. You can really make a big case for Cabal. Uh, but The Thief of Always is just straight-up portal fantasy. It's even aimed at young audiences. And that's the book that begins with the line, The Great Grey Beast February Had Eaten Harvey Swick Alive. It's about kids. They get kidnapped or rather lured to the holiday house where you get to live an entire year every day, all the holidays in one beautiful day. But that day actually does last a year, and the house just uses you up because it's stealing your time. And when that time runs out, you get turned into a fish and the house eats your soul. Have a nice day. Well, there you go. That's very much the pleasure island model of portal fantasy, which mm. we take the name of from Pinocchio, where you can have everything. You can have joy and wonder and magic, but there is a cost. Which I think is fun to play with because even if there's not an overtly written cost, I think some of the fun tension of portal fantasy is that there is some kind of cost, right? There's cost the protagonist in some way relationship cost or you're giving up one set of dreams for another or choosing between different paths and I think that there's something kind of you know innately human about having that anxiety um which might be one of the reasons we enjoy portal fantasy we get to watch someone actually like live it out in kind of you know real time actual you know instead of having these these deep-rooted anxieties living in us eating at us someone's actually doing it and making the decisions so I feel like we're kind of coming to the end of our hour. Um, but just do you have any other words of wisdom, Shannon, for building a rich and delightful portal fantasy world? You need to ask yourself, why is it connected to this world? What benefit is the portal world getting from being connected to this world? It doesn't matter if you're ever going to answer that question in the story, but you need to know. Uh, that is my primary word of anything on all world building topics, just period, is it doesn't matter if it's ever going to come up in the story, you need to know. Because if you don't know, then you can't underpin it as necessary. Um, you know, one of the series that I write is called Encrypted, and that's about a world where basically if it is in folklore mythology anywhere in the world, it existed. Or it exists. A lot of things are dead because humans humaned at them. 
um, and we drove them to extinction. So there is a species of what are called cryptids, which are all the folkloric creatures in that world, called the wadget. And in the case of the wadget, experience extreme sexual dimorphism, meaning that there is such a dramatic difference in appearance between the males and females of the species that you can actually mistake them for different species. Male wadget look like giant cobras. Female wadget look like, look like ladies. Uh, now the wadget are primarily found in India. Wadget was an Egyptian cobra god. And I have had people uh, decide that this meant that I didn't do my research because clearly I didn't get it right. And I'm like, well, no, this is a series about conservation and things being driven to extinction. What that means is that there were Wajit in Egypt and we encountered them first and we decided that was the name of people whose uh, dudes looked like snakes. And then we wiped them all the fuck out because we're dicks. So it is less about not knowing and more about the idea that we got there and we killed them, which is a thing that people do, you know, so I need to know that even if no one in the set, there is no one left in the world in that setting that knows that this is why they're called Wajit. They just know that we killed so many of the ones in India that they have lost their language and are using human languages and we call them Wajit. Well, why do we do that? We don't know. That's just what we knew to call them. So you have to answer those questions, even if you have no intention of answering them for the reader. It will make your world more realistic and easier to inhabit. That's a fantastic way of putting it. All right, listeners, mark that down. Well, and as is our tradition, we ask our guests to give us a parting gift before they go, which is that as we're live world building a world um, on air, we collect trivia from our guests to populate into our world and our challenges having to do that without having the scaffolding in place beforehand. So, Shannon, give us give us something before you go. Can you give me a genre? We're we're operating in a age of sail technology level fantasy world. So we have magic. We've uh, we have that level of tech. Um, other things we've been given have been like everything from a rival school of martial arts to mammals that are given as gifts between cultures, any sort of thing like that. And we have to figure out how we work it into the, the broader picture. So one of your primary continental lines of rulership, one of the ones that still practices any form of monarchy, has experienced a complete change of which line is currently holding the throne due to the local equivalent of smallpox. It turned out that one of the lines of descent basically just had a genetic predisposition towards suffering the most negative form of this disease, and they all died out. And what was fun about that for them was this actually unveiled who all the king's bastards were. Yes! <laughs> yes! Oh my god, I love it. That's love gorgeous. It. That's Love it. That is trivia and a fantastic story hook, all wrapped up in one. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Adore it. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sean, and we appreciate it. And listeners, you if you haven't read them already, you have 50-plus books to add to your TBRs. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't be. <laughs> I'm not that no. sorry because as you heard from the yelling, I have very large, very opinionated cats. And when you buy my books, you feed those cats and they will eat me. So I appreciate the help. Buy the books so that Shauna does not get turned into kibble. Oh, they'll eat me.
Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your running life. Our next episode will go up on November 10th, where we'll have the Queen of Grimdark herself, Anna Smith-Spark, join us to talk about building grimdark worlds. I'd also like to remind you that we are a finalist for the Hugo Award for Best Fancast. If you are eligible to vote for the Hugos, we would love your consideration. And if you want to learn how you can be eligible, visit discon3.org. You want to know more about your hosts and the books we write? Links to all that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a reviews on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.